Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Colin here. So what's a hero? Uh, We're going to consider how we define heroism and how we treat heroes today. And yes, there is a problem, as one of our guests will say, uh, of just directing that kind of sentiment to doctors and nurses and other frontline workers. You're our heroes. And then turning a blind eye while they drop in their tracks because they don't have the right equipment, they're not adequately protected. Just as it was kind of fake to say thank you for your service to a group of Americans who usually because of poor education and poverty signed up for the armed services and took all the risks for the rest of us. I get all that. <laughs> I really do. But I also think there really are heroes and heroes have a value and there's a reason to want and to cherish heroes. So conversation to come. That's uh, Joel, Joel Solbuel, of course, uh, and uh, there's no way you can contradict Joel Solbuel. Uh, she's been in our studio many times, and she's a lot of fun, and she has a lot of interesting things to say. Although, I think today in our consideration of the question of heroes, it's not so much the question, do our heroes let us down, but do we let our heroes down? Um, and that will uh, very specifically be the focus here uh, at the beginning of the show. A little bit later, we're going to talk about how... The shifting standards of history sometimes turn a hero into a villain or the other way around. And uh, we'll talk to historian Walt Woodward very specifically about that. Um, And then uh, at the end, we'll talk about whether you can have um, heroism without its counterpart, uh, which is cowardice. All right. Beginning things, though, is Dahlia Lithwick, also been on the show many, many times, writes about the courts and the law for Slate, hosts the terrific podcast Amicus, which you should be already listening to. Uh, but she recently wrote about the so-called trap of heroism for Slate. Uh, so, Dahlia, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. And so I'm just going to have you walk us through kind of your central argument in that piece. Well, you know, I would start with this, Colin. I wrote this in April, and it's fascinating because it feels like it was a million years ago. I mean, I wrote this in a moment when people were driving by hospitals and honking, and, you know, everybody had signs up thanking uh, doctors and, you know, truckers and people in grocery stores who were stocking the shelves. And that just feels like a thousand million years ago, because now whatever that moment was is past. Um, All those people are still working really hard. But, uh, you know, the moment of of worshiping them seems uh, to be over. And I think that's its own Um, sort of comment on the ADD of our heroism, right? Like somebody can only be a hero for five minutes and then 
we need a new one. But I guess, you know, the, the, the upshot of what I was trying to write at that moment was that there's something about labeling someone a hero uh, that disempowers them in about a million ways. You know, on the one hand, it allows us to not do systemic fixes, right? Whenever there's a school shooting, we always find one teacher or one student who did something heroic, and then we don't have to talk about why there are school shootings. Uh, and it also silences uh, the heroes. We don't want to actually hear from the doctors and the orderlies and the first responders and the people stocking shelves. We want them to just be quiet and be worshipped the minute they open their mouths they're not heroes anymore and so I think I was trying to sort of point out that in a moment in which we could just look at all those essential workers and say thank you here's a mask here's protective equipment what can we do for you instead we do exactly the opposite which was to give them none of those things and to think that they just wanted lots of parades of cars. Right. And, you know, there's, I think, an analog between that and the way military service has been conceived of in recent decades. There's that kind of thank you for your service. You know, once again, not looking at systemic problems. Are you getting paid enough? Are you being recruited disproportionately from the ranks of America's poor and uneducated? Because even though the pay is not that great, uh, it's better than what they could get in, in, in any other place. Is the vet veterans system functioning well and delivering uh, needed services to you after your time in service. We don't want to think about all that stuff. And so we have kind of a cheap date with our conscience. If we're saying to nurses, you guys are heroes, but we're not really looking at that whole question of, you know, are they adequately protected? What can we be doing? Who should we be pre pressuring? That's kind of what you're saying. Call somebody a hero and let them drop dead in their, in their shoes uh, seems like a, a pretty cheap gesture. Yeah, that's absolutely what I'm saying. And I think, you know, you're always aware of the fact that as long as somebody in the military is in a sharp uniform, uh, you know, the, the captain of the plane will make us all thank them. But the minute they're, you know, panhandling on the streets because every single veteran system has failed to protect them, to protect their health, their mental health, uh, you know, then they're a problem. And that person is fundamentally the same person. They're either a hero or they're not. But I think we just get really obsessed with the trappings of heroism in the moment and don't follow through. And I think, you know, the other thing I wrote about, which really does, I think, become more salient with time is, you know, those voters in Wisconsin who stood in line uh, for hours and hours and hours to vote in the primary. Everyone was fetting them as heroes, you know, good for them. They're risking COVID to stand in line after their system of, you know, election system utterly broke uh, as a result of the pandemic. And instead of looking around and saying, hey, how do we fix voting for the November election. We pluck them out. We, you know, coronate them heroes. And here we are, you know, weeks later, and many, many of them actually were exposed to the disease. I mean, this is not heroism. Doing ordinary acts of either, you know, Walmart service, because that's what you're paid to do, or civic duty, which is voting by relegating it to this kind of worshipful, iconic hagiography, you disserve the actual action of either compensating workers fairly or trying to prevent the pandemic from spreading or making sure that the franchise works even during COVID. And none of those things are happening. We're just labeling people heroes and walking away.
So let me uh, put on my Steven Pinker costume, uh, which I keep at hand at all times. Useful. Uh, Good. Yes, yes. Uh, and and so, so let me just sort of press back a little bit and say, you know, I think the counter argument here, there's several counter arguments. So let's start with one. What do heroes do? Well, among other things, heroes ideally inspire other people to do things uh, based on what they've done. So and so you can I'll pick a, an example of, you know, the kind of the almost the ultimate in futility, uh, the Massachusetts 54th. Is that what they were uh, in, in the Civil War? The all black regiment who ultimately died uh, many many of them vast casualties at the battle of fort wagner they were put in the vanguard even though they were just coming off a battle where they hadn't eaten for two days or gotten really any sleep you know i mean they were treated very unfairly however their heroism inspired a lot of other African-Americans to join the Union cause. We can debate whether that's a good thing or not, but a lot of them enlisted as a result of that. And and I look at the frontline healthcare workers now, and I'm sure there are some people, some young people are going, well, I was going to be a nurse, but maybe not, you know, but I think there's a lot of other people going, wow, that's a meaningful life. That's something I could do that would matter to work in public health or epidemiology, to work, you know, on the front lines fighting a, a terrifying disease. You kind of hope anyway that, yes, everything that you're saying is absolutely 100% true, Dahlia, but you kind of hope, me and my Steven Pinker costume, I hope that there's like some some good precipitation from this. You know, it's such a good point, Colin, and I think about it all the time. And, you know, I've just come off uh, doing this huge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, podcast and print series, and I'm so aware of the fact that, it's such a double-edged sword, right? I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, everyone has the tote bag. Everybody has the earrings. Everybody dresses their kid up for Halloween. And that kind of heroism, you know, you're right. It inspired women to go to law school. It inspired me to go to law school. It's it's vitally important. But I think just to push back on your pushing back, I <laughs> think that there's a way in which, and this is just maybe, uh, you know, me sounding like Chris Hedges for a minute, but I think that we consume heroism. <laughs> In other words, if you're just buying the tote bag, if you're just leaning back and saying, you know, Bob Mueller will save us, Adam Schiff will save us, um, you know, Dr. Fauci will save us, and, and not doing a thing, then I worry. And I, I, I understand that sort of layering sort of... <laughs> capitalism over the problem, but I'm more and more aware of the fact, you know, in your example, absolutely, if people are inspired to go to med school, to go to nursing school, to go work in horrible, horrible, you know, underpaid jobs in, um, you know, old age homes and to work with uh, the elderly, my God, then this heroism is worth it. But, but I worry that it's, it's not that thick and that it's not that enduring. And it's, you know, who do I light a candle to today? And then tomorrow when I've moved on, who do I light a candle to tomorrow? And, and it's got to go deeper than just, revering Anthony Fauci this week and then revering someone next week, because I think it comes with that passivity we talked about. And right. uh, yes, buying the, the Anthony Fauci plush toy, which I have seen. Exactly. Or great. the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, anything workout video. I, I, you know, I, I just think we sometimes substitute hero worship, which I don't know that that's an empowering enterprise for actual 
effectuating of what those heroes want us to do. Right. And, you know, I, I want to another aspect of this that I think is interesting is that there has been some, I think, cons considerable social enforcement uh, of some of these ideas through some of the new aspects of social media. So, for example, you know, um, the, the Starbucks barista in San Diego who insisted on the woman wearing her mask and she tried to to vilify him. And instead, you know, people started a tip fund for him. And he, it was like $85,000 last time I checked. Here's this guy just doing his everyday job, but doing his everyday job in a, in a responsible way and trying to, you know, enforce a sensible standard. You know, and, and he was just, you know, we can maybe it's a little too quick and superficial and kind of borderline a fun thing for everybody to do. But there's a way in which some of those things anyway do result in maybe some permanent changes of norms. Yes, you are a hero uh, if you're trying to get somebody to wear a mask at Starbucks and you're not a hero if you're trying to screw that guy. I think that's right. Although, again, I think, you know, one of the things I was was poking at in my piece is I think in this intensely polarized political moment we live in one person's hero is the other person's you know villain and we don't even have you know basic agreements about facts or science or truth uh and so the minute anyone acts as a hero and you really see it in the masking wars where you know one person in walmart calls out another person who's not wearing a mask and the video goes viral and now we have a hero and now we have a villain except for half the country the villain is the hero and the half the country the hero is the villain and it is so i don't know that it's moving us as a collective forward as i said i think part of the problem and this is just absolutely i think worsened by the fact that we're all at home online all the time but there becomes this kind of consumption right you're endlessly consumption consuming who today's hero is and who today's villain is and i'm i'm really mindful of the episode you know in in central park where mm -hmm. you know we we suddenly have a, a hero and a villain and someone getting called out and for two days it dominates the news cycle and then it's all moved on and i'm also mindful in a weird way of the parkland kids right it's all anyone could talk about for two months and then when they turned to do what i think was really this fundamentally transformational thing of registering voters we didn't care <laughs> we just nobody cared and I, I guess i just worried again that there's some combination of this national 20-minute attention span that is fueled by the media and by social media and this sense that if you just click like or give a dollar to the barista that you've done a thing and i i think it it just makes for by and large, pretty superficial change. That, and that, that does. But the, I think the yes. reinforcement or the reestablishment of norms uh, sits underneath some of these superficial gestures. And, I, you know, with the Parkland kids, you know, when you were talking earlier about uh, about school shootings, I was thinking about them because, yeah, you can say, well, OK, we watched them carry the ball from, you know, the 70 yard line down to the 20, you know, maybe they didn't get into the into the end zone. They did amazing stuff in terms of changing that exact narrative, though, and in a way that was I was happened to be teaching college students at the time that was happening. It was incredibly inspiring to them that a group of people more or less their age could kind of take back the narrative could in fact say, oh, no, no, we're, we're going to do our own talking about this. And here's what we're going to say about this. 
I think that's giant. I mean, I, I'm still wearing my Steven Pinker costume, but I, I think that's a, a giant thing and a way that really does kind of upend the top-down narrative by which heroism is either conferred or withheld. Uh, I know you got to get out of here pretty soon, so I will, I will uh, give you the remainder of the time. No, I mean, I, I actually think we might be saying the same thing even though we're wearing different costumes um, because I think my takeaway absolutely over the last couple of years, and this is RBG and Greta Thunberg and all of it, is we are the heroes we're looking for. Like, right. if we stop looking for somebody to you know, like on Facebook or follow on Instagram and we start doing things that really move the world, then I really believe that's why these George Floyd protests, why these Black Lives Matter protests are changing the world too. Because there is no boss, there's no leader. It's just organic. And as you say, it's it's inverting the hero narrative. So I think we might be agreeing uh, as to what the the dream is here. I just, I guess I'm very, very anxious about this very peripatetic sort of stutter step. Today's hero is is forgotten tomorrow. And if it's at the expense of, as you say, making really foundational change, then I don't love having the illusion that because we consumed heroism today, we did something. I want us to be heroes tomorrow. That's right. You can consume heroism, but you also got to eat your Wheaties. Uh, exactly. All right. So uh, the part of uh, Chris Hedges on today's show is played by Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about <laughs> the courts and law for Slate, host the terrific podcast Amicus, and wrote about heroism for Slate. The part of Steven Pinker was played by me. Uh, we're going to be back. We're going to talk about history uh, and how history makes and unmakes heroes. And the guns shout above our heads and we kiss as though nothing could fall and the shame I've always thought a lot about the way in which we declare people historic heroes. We actually have in Connecticut an official state hero and an official state heroine, but those kinds of landscapes are often very contested. I do think George Washington sang it best in Hamilton, where he said, let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. So, so much about, of this is about who does tell your story. Joining us now is Walter Woodward, the state historian of Connecticut. He's also a history professor at UConn and the host of Grating the Nutmeg podcast about Connecticut history. His new book is Creating Connecticut, Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State. Walter Woodward, welcome back to our show. 
How you doing, Colin? Well, I, I'm doing just fine. So one go. of the things that we see here in, you know, even as there are arguments about statues and about different kinds of memorializing of people and shifting perspectives, uh, yesterday's hero is today's villain. That's nothing new, really, right? I mean, that's whole, not at all. Yeah, you know, yeah. like so many things, I, I've come to think that heroism is a fashion business. People's ideas of what constitutes heroism and who's a hero changes over time it, as new groups come to power and seek a seat at the table of public events. They often use people that are identified as heroes to make a claim both on the past and on how things should be moving forward. And as we've seen very much recently, that makes a lot of one-time heroes vulnerable. So um, Prudence Crandall is a great example. She is the aforementioned, aforementioned state heroine, but she wasn't always, right? I mean, back in the early 19th century, how was she perceived in Canterbury and its surroundings? Sure. That, the thing that makes Prudence Crandall a hero today is the thing that made her vilified as she was becoming a hero. There was this little town of Canterbury in the eastern part of the state, and it had great aspirations to become a big market town and make a name for itself. And this young woman, Prudence Crandall, came to the town and said, you know, let me open up a girls' school here in Canterbury. And what better way to put a place on the map in the way that Litchfield was put on the map by a woman's school? Prudence Crandall came and the town folks said, yes, we'll help. And they put up money to start the school. They had a good first year. And then in the second year, Prudence Crandall announced that she wanted to open her school to little misses of color. And for the townspeople, that was a shock and a kind of betrayal. And she became instantly persona non grata, totally vilified. And the thing that we admire her for, this commitment to equal rights and equal education and the courage she showed in the face of what was truly violent and vicious town backlash made her a villain in the 1830s in Canterbury, the town that had welcomed her. Right. And, you know, when we look at something like that, it is sort of the obverse of, oh, I don't know, John C. Calhoun. So John C. Calhoun at one point is regarded as a great statesman, a great leader here in America. And, you know, clearly now his his support of really what you would have to call white supremacy is very, very unappetizing. And, but, you know, Thomas Jefferson had this. Thomas Jefferson had an expression that, that the world belongs to the living and usufruct, which means that every generation gets to create the world as it's best suited for their needs. Mm -hmm. I mean, we live in a world that is very different than the world of John C. Calhoun. And some of the things that happened in his era are not only unrecognizable, they're unconscionable today. And I, and yeah, although I, I think it's also fair to say, and Crandall is a great example, is that I think increasingly when we look to heroes, when we look for heroes, people who upheld the existing power structure in its most punitive manifestations are less likely right now to be understood as heroes, and correctly so. And somebody like Crandall, somebody like the Smith sisters, who we're going to talk about in a few minutes, people who question the existing power structure in its punitive and denying manifestations, I think are more valid candidates for heroism at any moment. I mean, Prudence Crandall 
predates John C. Calhoun practically, and she understood that young women of color deserved education at, at her school. You know, there, that filtered through into her consciousness at that historical moment. Some people got it, some people didn't. Well, absolutely. And, and, you know, we said farewell to John Lewis, who was, if there is an archetypal embodiment of that challenge to the existing power structure, it's John Lewis and good trouble, right? Right, exactly. So let's, we, we've got Prudence Crandall on the one hand. Who, now let's take John Mason. Uh, this is an example of somebody who has essentially moved in the other direction. I'll let you tell well, the sure. story. Well, he, sure. He went from hero to villain. We have a tendency, I think, sometimes to read history backwards from the present. And when we look at John Mason, we see him as an all-powerful figure representative of this Puritan juggernaut. But in fact, in 1636, 1637, the Puritan settlers in Connecticut were an endangered species. There weren't many of them. They didn't know the environment. They were on the verge of starving. And they were at at war with a very powerful group of indigenous people who'd frankly had enough of them. And in late April of 1637, a group of Pequot and Wangunt warriors had attacked Weathersfield. And right when when the Puritans there were getting out into their fields and planting, for the Puritans, it was an existential threat. So John Mason, who had experience fighting in European wars, led this group of Puritan settlers down to Beard the Lion in his den, as it were, attacked a village at Mystic that was largely populated by women and children. He said the only way he could save himself and his people was to set fire to the village. He ended up killing, we estimate, from 400 to 700 people. It was a carnage that the Native Americans, both Mason's allies and the Pequots themselves, had never seen. It was unthinkable. To those Puritan settlers, he became a hero. He had kept them from dying. And so the descendants of these Puritans honored Mason as a hero for the next three centuries. And in fact, they put up a statue on the site where it's now called the Mystic Massacre had taken place to honor him. Well, during that whole 300 years, as you can imagine, the people who had been victims of that attack seethed with resentment and anger and whatever you can imagine. And by 1990, they had a voice strong enough to say, this must change. And in 1990, a coalition of native groups petitioned to get the statue off of the sacred ground of this site of death. And the town of Windsor said, okay, we'll take Mason's statue. But there's right now very much a move by people who say this statue needs to go. So Mason has gone from a hero 300 years ago to clearly very much of a villain for many people now. But I also think, though descendants of the Puritans are thin on the ground, there are people who still feel that he has an important place in Connecticut history that should be recognized in all its complexity. Right. And we should say, I mean, to me, to my eyes, it's like having a statue of William Calley from the Milai massacre. Like, why would you do such a thing? Even no matter what you thought about sort of how Calley wound up doing that, why would you have a statue up for him? It doesn't make any sense. But it's worth noting, yeah, that in Mystic in the 90s, when they were arguing this question, it got pretty heated. He was a complex guy. He did terrible things. There's a resonance here between Washington 
but right. this is a man for also who there are great achievements associated with. How do you how do you do justice to their history? Yes, I, I mean doing justice to the history, I think, is very different from honoring somebody as a hero. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's true. But there's a danger, I think, as a historian, that erasure negates that past rather than presents and exposes you to those lessons. Right. So, uh, you know, let's, uh, you and I, you and I have talked about this figure before, Walter, but I think what people often don't understand about Nathan Hale was he was not a hero in his time, in his moment. In fact, during the Revolutionary War, nobody knew who Nathan Hale was. Part of that was because he was a spy and you're not supposed to, but also because his significance at that moment, unless there's things that we don't know about, wasn't really big. George Washington either never would have heard his name or seen it in a briefing paper and immediately forgot about it. You know, he became a hero really in the following century because people needed heroes. People and certain people had agendas for wanting, say, a Connecticut well, hero, he, a Yale hero, stuff like that. Yeah, there there is a the source of the quote for which Nathan Hale is supposedly famous, which we still don't know that he said, I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country, I may be paraphrasing, was a man named William Hull, who was a Revolutionary War hero, a friend of Nathan Hale's. He heard about Nathan Hale's death the day after Nathan Hale died, and he told the story of Nathan Hale. But that story in fact, it wasn't even talked about for 50 years, and then it didn't appear in print until the 1830s or 40s, posthumously in a biography about William Hull. And the biography was written by relatives of Hull in an effort to reclaim his, by then, totally tarnished reputation. He had surrendered Detroit to the British without firing a shot. He was court-martialed and sentenced to death. Hull would have been shot, but Madison gave him a reprise. But the, the really important story is that the Hale story appears in his biography, which is an effort at self-redemption. And there's a sleight of hand going on in this story in which it appears that the family is saying, you know, Hale was a spy. That was a disreputable thing. But Look at how heroic he was. Now look at what Hull did. And if you think of it in the same way, he's a much better person than this condemned coward, right? Right. And, you know, and, but I think it's also important to know with Hale, yeah, he was for the most part in obscurity. It, it does appear, for example, that people at Yale, particularly members of the Lenonian Society, kind of did a PR campaign for him in the 19th century, started getting articles about him and poems written, partly because Yale didn't really have too many big eminences coming out of the American Re Revolution. And even though Hale got caught, he was what was available to kind of fill that hero role, too. I think what you're getting at that is most important in this is that when we think about heroes and when we hear about heroes, we should look really closely to see what agenda and whose agenda they are representing. Because heroes rarely exist in a vacuum. They, they've been made heroes by a particular group who are staking a claim to a particular set of values or attitudes or course of action, almost always. So let's talk about uh, two women who, um, first of all, I'm, I was kind of born in Glastonbury. I used to live in Glastonbury. I used to cover the town of Glastonbury. I didn't know this story. So tell oh, us. Oh, it's a great story. Tell the us Smith about the Smith sisters. sisters. Yeah, yeah. 
The Smith sisters were, it was a family of five girls, an early 19th century uh, nonconformist family in Glastonbury, quite successful. And these five sisters who never married spent their youth working for the abolition of slavery. Of course, it took till after the Civil War for that to be achieved. And by then, there were only two of them left, Abigail Hadassah Smith and her sister, Julia. And they switched gears from abolition. They became supporters of women's suffrage. 1869, uh, they went to Isabella Beecher Hooker's conference, where she formed the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association. And they were getting older then. They were in their late 60s, so they weren't that active until 1873, when the tax assessor of Glastonbury came to their home and did something that got them mobilized. He increased the assessment on their property and on the property of two other widows in Glastonbury, but he didn't raise any of the assessment on the men in the town. And Abby and Julia just said, this is a wrong. So Abby wrote a speech. She went to the next town meeting. She stood up and gave the speech comparing this taxation that they had experienced as a taxation without representation in the American Revolution. She said, this is a country that stands for liberty. What kind of liberty is it when half of the people in the town can rule the other half of the people in the town at will? Well, the town meeting did nothing. So Abby and Julia refused to pay their taxes. So the tax collector comes and he takes seven of the sisters' cows and marches them off, sequesters them away. He's going to put them up for auction to pay their taxes. An early January day in 1874, the tax collector with a drum, 40 people behind them, marched these seven cows down the main street of Glastonbury to auction. At the end of the line in a wagon, uh, are the bonneted Smith sisters, Abby and Julia, and they go to the auction too, and they take the money that would have been their tax money, and they buy back four of their cows. The cows are really happy because all the time they were in captivity, as it were, they wouldn't even stand still to be milked unless one of the sisters was around. There was a newspaper editor in Springfield, the Springfield Republican, who heard the story of Abby and her speech and the auction of the cows. He printed the story. Papers around the country picked it up. And Abby and her cows, they're among the first viral heroes in American history. Within two months, Abby was a national celebrity. She met the president. She was invited to Congress. She was at many suffrage events. She really became a remarkable symbol, both of liberty and of women's rights. Yeah, you know, I'm struck by the fact that, first of all, George Washington is right in Hamilton. You don't really know who's going to live, who's going to die, who's going to tell your story. And it is important to have people to tell your story. I mean, that editor at the Springfield Republican told the story. Uh, Hale was lucky to have people tell his story. We didn't even mention George Dudley Seymour, who was this eccentric guy. Yeah, there you this, go. Absolutely. He had kind of a man crush on Nathan Hale about a century yeah, removed that's great. and, and true. just did everything he could to glorify him. If you don't have that, you will wind up maybe in obscurity. It does so much. You know, publicity really counts. People have to know you exist for you to matter. But of course, social media has broadened out the ability of ordinary people to reach an audience in some 
very creative ways. As usual, Walter Woodward, it is a joy to talk to our state historian of Connecticut and the uh, host of Grating the Nutmeg, a podcast about American history. His new book is Creating Connecticut Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State. Okay, we'll take a quick break here, and God willing, we will be back right after the proverbial this. All right, we are back. We're doing a show about heroes and heroism and our shifting understanding of that very concept. Um, my, um, my, my understanding has shifted uh, to include Cat Pastor, uh, who is producing the show today from the studio. She's the person who goes in and makes it possible for others of us to work remotely. That counts as heroism as far as I am concerned. The producer of this particular episode is senior producer Betsy Kamlin, also a hero, also a nurse as far as that goes. Uh, and uh, so thanks to both of them. All right. So onward, onward with this conversation. Uh, Chris Walsh joins us, director of the College of uh, Arts and Sciences writing program at Boston University and the author of Cowardice, A Brief History. What would a conversation about heroes be without a conversation about cowardice? So a welcome to our show, Chris Walsh. Thanks so much, Colin. I'm a son of South Glastonbury, too. So uh, oh. good to be here. Great to hear oh. those stories. All right. So, um, uh, so let's begin with the idea that there's cowardice, which we can work on a definition for, but there's also the fear of seeming cowardly, or at least the fear of showing weakness, which I think, uh, as you argue, people, especially men, they kind of equate the two things. Fear of showing weakness would be the resemblance uh, of cowardice. So I must not show weakness even when common sense would dictate otherwise. Right. Um, and that is pervasive and, and a really powerful uh, feeling. Uh, we see it now in in the mask controversy that uh, Dahlia was referring to, um, that uh, men, especially men, but um, not just men, see uh, wearing a mask as a sign of shameful weakness, uh, even though they're more, uh, uh, in some cases, more susceptible to the dangers of, of COVID. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a problem, um, and uh, and I think actually, uh, you know, the the idea of cowardice usually tends to generate more heat than light. Um, it's a label that gets thrown around, and people don't um, really want to think critically about it. But in doing so, um, if you do think critically about it, I think there are ways that it can be actually more useful than um, thinking about heroism. And celebrating heroes is as useful and valuable as that is. Well, for example, one of the well, one of the examples that you give, um, there's 
a long-standing dichotomy within uh, movements uh, of African American activism in this country, uh, and it's you know it's very easily, perhaps too easily, reduced to Malcolm versus Martin. Um, and so there's one view of how to affect change that, that's embodied by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, the other one is uh, embodied by Malcolm X. Actually, before I, I, I turn you loose on this, uh, maybe we can just hear Malcolm X telling a crowd that sit-ins are for cowards. It's not so good to refer to what you're going to do as a sit-in. That right there castrates you. Right there it brings you down. What, what goes with it? What Think of the image of a, someone sitting. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. So, uh, Chris Walsh, let's talk a little bit about this. There, there's a sense in which uh, we... We what? We sort of invert our, um, we have to struggle a little bit with our conventional notion of heroism, which I think has often the, no, the notion of a warrior embedded right. in it. So, yeah. so play that out over this particular dichotomy. Yeah, well, you know, the, um, that tradition that you observed in, um, in African-American uh, struggle for equality uh, has um, you know, deep roots, uh, you know, the institution of slavery upended um, the moral order uh, and, um, and, and made actually, get, you know, one of the things the African-American tradition gives us is a, a different take on conventional ideas of, of heroism and, and cowardice. And I think you got, uh, your previous guest got at this a little bit. Um, but you think about, you know, the, the sort of a primal, uh, classic way of demonstrating cowardice is running away. And in fact, to run away from slavery was a uh, uh, really brave and difficult act. Um, and, uh, and, and then we get, um, you know, um, Ma uh, Martin Luther King uh, and, and others uh, organizing sit-ins um, in, in segregated restaurants and, and Malcolm X um, castrated uh, to sit in is to be castrated to be a chump and a coward. Um, but Martin Luther King, in in response, um, uh, had it that uh, the the I'll quote from letter from Birmingham Jail. One day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo. Christian heritage. And, um, and so, you know, uh, the, 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 this overturning of ideas of cowardice versus courage, weakness versus strength, it's not uniquely uh, an African-American tradition. Jesus was, was pretty big on this as well as, as Martin Luther King uh, readily acknowledged. Um, but, uh, you know, the legacy of this, of looking at the sit-in, or running as, as in fact courageous, we see it in other seemingly, you know, in simplistic ways that might seem cowardly. Things like after Ferguson raising one's arms in in a in a sense of surrender, um, or of uh, or or kneeling. Um, these are actually uh, in 
in when we think about them and, and look at them as they're intended, and I think as in, in their effects, are acts of defiance and and bravery and making a point that the moral order is needs changing. Right. And I think also, so yes, as you suggest, the tradition's an old one. Um, and we've got Jesus, we've got Gandhi. We've also really got the tradition of a lot of the saints. A lot of uh, mm-hmm. the people who have been beatified uh, are people who have decided to stand there and take it, you know, to be mm-hmm. to be martyred uh, rather than to, to, to do something violent in return. So it's an old tradition. I think one of the things that makes King such an epic figure is the ability to lead others into that tradition. Saints mm-hmm. have a way of dying alone. I mean, not every single one of them, but but a lot of them do. You know, whereas what King did was to say, well, first of all, it's not really necessarily the case that all of us have to die under these circumstances. Obviously, uh, he met a tragic and violent end, but we can go out on that bridge, you know, or we can face Mm. those fire hoses and we can do it with dignity. And you know what? Some of us are going to get hurt and we're going to sing to keep our spirits up and we're going to steal ourselves for the pain. But this is the fight. And and I think it's, it's one thing it's an act of courage for one person to do it. Mm. There's another thing that's happening with King, which is he's getting a lot of people to do this thing that's almost counterintuitive in terms of mm. one's own physical safety. And as you're suggesting, also counter narrative in terms of what we understand to be heroic struggle, which is much closer, right, to what Malcolm X is saying. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, uh, one of the things that it, when enough people start to do it, um, it becomes not so much an act of courage or heroism, which is something that is uh, takes place sort of beyond the call of duty, um, but actually simply, not simply, but not easily um, answering the call of duty, uh, fulfilling one's duty um, when, uh, and, and here's where cowardice can be of some value um, because the definition of it is is simpler than it is for a hero. A, co- a coward is somebody who fails to do their duty because of excessive fear, and um, and so these these large movements make it in part um, become as big and as and as and maybe I'm putting my Steven Pinker costume on here, um, but they become uh, bigger and bigger because they. Uh, they provoke this really strong sentiment about not not wanting to be cowardly. Soldiers do not do their duty typically. They don't sort of uh, you know um, man their the fort or rush rush the uh, machine gun because they want to be seen as heroes, but because they don't want to be seen as cowards. And when you can get enough uh, get a group sentiment that way. Um, the idea of cowardice becomes very, very powerful for right. good. Yes. By the way, just don't use another person's Stephen Pinker costume because it's an error. COVID. That is just, just make sure you have your own. Not in, not in the pandy. Yeah, don't. Don't share uh, Stephen Picker customs. So we only have a few minutes left here. I do want to say that one of the things that also affects the whole dynamic that you're talking about is the degree to which a whole group of people subscribe to one mythos, you know, mm-hmm. one uh, sort of, you know, uh, ideal understanding of the circumstances. And so you have situations, which you pointed out, situations like Germany, which has had occasion to completely reevaluate and, and and repudiate to a certain degree a part of its fairly recent past, Mm -hmm. which makes things like 
civil disobedience or even deserting a slightly or maybe a radically different kind of act. But I'll let you uh, comment mm. on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, there are, uh, you know, memorials to deserters in, in, in Germany um, that uh, give you a sense of, uh, you know, to, to and some of the things you were talking about before with your previous guests about how, um, you know, who, who tells the story and, and the, the context in which we judge these things. Um, and I guess, I don't know if you're, you're getting at this, but there's a, a further uh, uh, trickiness about the fact that sometimes um, not doing anything is, or, or, or not doing anything dramatic is actually the courageous or at least the mm -hmm. non-cowardly thing to do. So um, sheltering in place, so, um, you know, wearing a mask or staying at home, um, those are, um, th those are actually what is needed sometimes. And, um, and it's hard to think, it's hard to valorize those things. Um, there's Milton's line about, uh, they also serve who only stand and wait. Um, and it's hard to remember that. Um, when uh, they're when the, what what gets celebrated are the heroes who uh, um, did not stand and wait, maybe went out recklessly and did something. Well, we haven't ended a show with a John Milton quote for a really long time, <laughs> so that's really good. Uh, and so Chris Walsh is director of the College of Arts and Sciences writing program at Boston University, the author of Cowardice, A Brief History. We've been having a conversation about heroism, uh, how it gets defined and redefined, uh, how uh, our understanding of what's heroic. I mean, look. Does anybody doubt for a second that if it's possible to win two presidential medals of freedom, that, that Fauci will get another one if and when Biden is sworn in, like quickly? <laughs> he actually got one from George W. Bush. He's already got one. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking of getting another one. Anyway, thanks to everybody who helped out today. Uh, thanks to uh, Betsy Kaplan and Cat Pastor in particular. I'm in charge from now on. And we just made it out of the big muddy with the captain dead and gone. We stripped and dived and found his body stuck in the old quicksand. I guess he didn't know that the water was deeper than the place he'd once before been. Another stream had joined the big muddy about a half mile from where we'd gone. We were lucky to escape from the big muddy when the big fool said to push on. Well, I'm not going to point any moral, I'll leave that for yourself. Maybe you're still walking, you're still talking, you'd like to keep your health. But every time I read the paper, them old feelings come on. We're waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. Waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. Waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. Waist deep, neck deep, soon even a tall man will be over his head where waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on.